you know, they've run out of wine, and so Jesus makes uh, wine. And uh, I, I grew up, when I first came to Christ, I was in a, a very, very conservative church. Maybe some of you come from rather conservative backgrounds. And um, I remember being taught that, um, well, I remember being taught a lot of things. One of them that was, was that facial hair was of the devil. And, uh, and kind of along with that, alcohol was, you know, of the devil. And I always wondered, you know, uh, if all this stuff is of the devil, why is it Jesus wore a beard? And if he didn't wear a beard, what was it they pulled out of his face, you know, right before the cross? Um, and, and how do they explain this? And uh, it's interesting, this week's studying, I read some rather interesting explanations from rather conservative point of views, um, that Jesus didn't really make wine, he made grape juice, uh, which is even kind of more miraculous as these people were getting drunk off of grape juice. Um, it, just, it just seems like kind of a crazy, a crazy miracle. Uh, you know, here Jesus is at a party for one where there's lots of drinking and carousing going on and when they run out of wine instead of saying, well, it's about time, he makes more and uh, supplies them not just with a little but like with enough to like keep them tanked for, you know, a month. And uh, you think, wow, wow, you know, what is, what is Jesus thinking here? Well, we want to we wanna look at this uh, this morning. Uh, doesn't Jesus have better things to do with this time? Isn't he just supposed to be out saving the world, not catering to this party? What's wrong with him? Doesn't he know the world's full of sin and sinners, and we've got to get serious here, right? Doesn't he know what good Christians are, serious, grim-faced? You know, some of you got the face this morning. Some of you are looking pretty grim-faced. You got it good. Don't lose that, because that's what we're here for, is to be grim, and uh, we're in a battle. Um, but Jesus also, apparently, had at least one day of fun in his life. So let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to us this morning from his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for uh, all that you did, all that you came to teach, because it all reveals the heart and wonder and glory of the Father. And Lord, we pray that even as we look at your word this morning, you would... By your spirit and by your, your goodness, teach us, uh, teach us how to experience you in all your fullness and glory, uh, so that our life would be rich and abundant in your grace. Lord, I pray that uh, we would just focus our heart and mind on you right now. Help us put aside the distractions and crazy things in our life and just for a moment uh, hear your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I don't think it's an accident or a, uh, uh, you know, nothing in Jesus' life happened accidentally. Everything was by design and great purpose. And I've titled this uh, message, The Life of the Party. And of course, Jesus is the life of everything. And so if a party will have life, Jesus will be the life of it. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, the life of the party is the guy wearing a lampshade and he's had too much to drink. That's not what I have in mind here. Can we just be real clear about that up front? Uh, Jesus is the life of the party because he brings life to everything. He brings joy to everything. He brings purpose and meaning to everything. And so let's see how he does this at this wedding. Let's read through uh, the first 11, 12 verses. Uh, It says, The next day Jesus' mother was the guest at a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. 
The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother spoke to him about the problem. They have no more wine, she told him. How does that concern you and me? Jesus asked. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Six stone water pots were standing there. They were used for Jewish ceremonial purposes and held 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled to the brim, he said, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So they followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Usually a host serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone is full and doesn't care, he brings out the less expensive wines. But you have kept the best wine until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was Jesus' first display of his glory, and his disciples believed him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Um, Jesus ends up at this wedding. Uh, Cana is a small village north of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus had been, prior to this, in uh, Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it says three, actually, it says three days had gone by since, uh, since the end of chapter 1, uh, Jesus' discussion with Nathaniel. Uh, so it's likely that this wedding had been going on for at least two or three days. Um, Jesus is there, his mother's there, and uh, Jesus' presence there is significant. And uh, it's not just that he was being polite, although I'm sure you know, he was, but... Um, he was on a mission. This was the beginning of his ministry. He had, he had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so for him to show up at this wedding uh, was significant. And he marks it. And, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is Jesus does enjoy life. Jesus enjoys a good party. He, he enjoys a celebration. And uh, the fact that he chooses a, a wedding celebration is, is especially significant and important. Um, now, I... I'll give you a little glimpse into my own personality. This may not come as a surprise to most of you, but nobody really characterizes me as the life of any party. Okay, I'm an introvert. I'm quiet. I'm extremely bashful. I don't know why I stand up in front of people. I mean, it's only by God's grace uh, that I do this because I really don't like being the center of attention at all. I would much rather blend into the woodwork. And at a party, I'm really usually quite good at that. I can usually find some remote corner to hide in uh, I'm a bit antisocial. I mean, I, I actually enjoy people, but I'm not, I'm not usually one to go and, you know, initiate and, you know, have a large crowd of people gathered around me. And so, when I read this story, I tend to see Jesus like I see me at a party. I see Jesus like off in some corner hiding behind a post, kind of like uh, Saul when, you know, they're about to anoint him king, hiding in the luggage. I picture Jesus, because this is how I would be, off of his disciples kind of outside the party, but I don't really think that's how it was with Jesus. Thankfully, praise God, he is not like me. I am hoping to be like him, which is much better. And I think Jesus was, while not necessarily overly entertaining or this kind of bubbly person necessarily, I do think if you had been at that wedding, if you'd been at that party, this you know, several-day event, you would have found Jesus fully engaged in celebration, in being there to celebrate this wonderful gift 
of union between man and wife, which is a picture of the very Trinity, and which is God's first institution of mankind. Uh, that He created Adam and Eve, He created man and woman, and He put them in the garden as a place of great joy. And I think you would have seen Jesus celebrating this moment and event with great passion and zeal and great enthusiasm. You know, it's, it, it's Jewish celebrations. This is another shocker. They drank alcohol and they danced. Now, here's a strange thought. You know, did Jesus get out there and dance? Well, it doesn't say, but you know, I can picture him joining in these, these dances, having fun, enjoying himself. I mean, some of us, that's just like horrifying. It's like we just can't picture. We see we've got to expand our view of Jesus because he was a guy who could celebrate. And the reason he could do that is because he is, he is the author of all joy. He is the reason to celebrate ultimately. Uh, God, in his goodness, in his beauty, in his abundance, is really what we must ultimately celebrate. Uh, the problem with us is that too often our partying and our celebration and our enjoyment is totally focused away from God. And so it's hard for us to reconcile enjoying life in God versus just enjoying life. Because for far too many of us, we've enjoyed far too much of life apart from God. You know, it's not that we've enjoyed wine, but that we've enjoyed wine too much in a way that was ungodly. It's not that we've had fun. It's that we've had fun in a way that was apart from and separate from God. I believe, and I'm growing to be more and more convinced of, us, uh, of this, that God wants us to have fun. God wants us to enjoy life. I think God looks down and he sees the church today and he goes, man, you guys are boring. You know, you guys got to get some life. Okay, you know, it's not that bad. You're not starving to death. You know, nobody's out to murder you, like as in some places. And you're just too unhappy. You know, I have redeemed you. I have saved you. There is a lot to celebrate. Uh, along with this thread, uh, and I, I do believe there's a place for this. There there's, has been in recent times in, in, the, in the worship movement and worship music movement, there's been this move that I think is a good thing of worship music that focuses on kind of humility and brokenness. And I do believe there's a place for that. But I don't think it's the end of worship. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, I, I, I've been in settings and situations where, you, you know, the worship becomes kind of a dirge. And it becomes like this, like I go away feeling just depressed. It's like I'm a sinner, I am broken, and I'm crushed, and I'm just, just I'm a mess. And, that, and it just ends there. And that should never be the end of worship. It may be a starting place, but it should end in great joy and celebration. Because in Christ we have tremendous things to celebrate. We'll talk about some of that in a minute. Um, so I, I picture Jesus, again, this is not in Scripture, this is my own imagination, but I picture Jesus celebrating, engaged in the party, communicating. He's a God of relationship, he's a part of God of joy, he's a God of love, he's a God of delight and wonder. And I picture him engaged with people on those terms, celebrating life, celebrating the wonder of marriage. And the reality is that our life does have a lot to celebrate. Does anybody here have something to celebrate this morning? Did anybody get out of bed this morning? For me, you know, as I get older, that's something to celebrate. And, uh, you know, all the parts were working and moving. I see high school students don't appreciate this. Just wait. Someday, you know, you're going to be very thankful that all the parts work, kind of. 
at least, you know, for the most part. It just takes a while to get them moving in the right direction. And you got something to celebrate there. How many of you have uh, a husband or a wife that you love? Or even better yet, who lo- that loves you? That is something to celebrate. Some of you guys, let me tell you, that is something to celebrate. Okay, that somebody besides your mother would love you. That is something to be happy about. All right? Uh, if you have children, I mean, I, one of the greatest joys in my life are my kids. And uh, something to celebrate. In fact, we have life itself. John 1 says, uh, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Our very life is lit up by God's sustaining grace and giving us life. And that is something to celebrate, because life is in Christ himself. And so to be a possessor of life is to possess something of divine glory here on earth. And it is something to celebrate. And, and really all of our life, all of our worship, all of our being should be uh, concerned with the joy of celebrating. That doesn't mean that we like, I mean you could take this to an extreme, you know, and we're good at doing extremes. We can go to the extreme of being miserable and sad and depressed all the time. We could go to the extreme of being like too happy and too party oriented, okay? And probably there's a balance somewhere in between there. But a balanced life would include uh, a a walk uh, in enjoying our life in Christ and celebrating all of his blessings in our life. And so Jesus is there. He's at this wedding. He is partaking, participating uh, as a a member of this celebration. Um, You know, we probably need some lessons in having fun. Uh, And we probably could learn some things from our kids who still know how to do this. You know, most kids are good. Most high school students, most middle school students are good at having fun. You know, us as adults, as we get older, probably need to spend a little more time hanging out with our kids, having fun. Um, But all was going well until uh, the joy began to run out. And uh, as they're at the party, uh, it says, verse 3, that the supply of wine ran out. And everybody knows, you know, without wine, you can't have a good party, apparently. Um, I wouldn't know, but that's what they tell me. Um, as in all of life, if anything will rob us of joy and celebration, it's, uh, it's people's expectations. Uh, one of the things that can kill it, you know, we're having fun, things are going well, and we find out somebody's expecting us to stop partying and go to work. Oh, man, what a drag. Somebody's expecting us to stop partying and go to school and do our homework. Oh, man, what a drag. You know, we're having a good time, spending money, having fun, and somebody's reminding us, by the way, you can't spend all that money because you have bills to pay. It's like, oh, that's a drag. Expectations. Okay, the great killer of parties and joy. And uh, in, in this wedding, there were lots of expectations. And I've done... Well, I've, I've been married, and I've married off one daughter. And it can be a bit stressful. Okay, if you've done weddings yet, you know it can be a bit stressful. And there are expectations. And in Jesus' day, it was no less true. And in fact, uh, perhaps the expectations were even greater. And the way it would work in those days, the, the groom and the groom's family was responsible for the wedding and the wedding celebration. And... Uh, the, the bride and her family and all the friends, invited guests would come. And you had some say in who you invited, but those who invited had the expectation of a good party. 
And these, these celebrations could go on for several days. Another good sign that we, most of us don't know how to celebrate is we never, you know, we never really celebrate more than one day. Just, I mean, we really don't do, I don't anyway, do like multi-day parties very well. I've never done that. Well, they, they would party for several days, up to a week. And this is some serious celebration. And uh, it was expected that the groom would supply abundantly for this party. And uh, the last thing that anybody wanted to hear is, the wine's gone. We drank the last bottle. Okay, that was bad news. And it wasn't just disappointing because it meant they had to like drink water. It was really an embarrassment to the family. And we don't know uh, if this word got around to the groom, but it may have. One of the servants may have whispered in his ear, man, you know, we're, we're about out of wine. And if you were the groom, you would start shaking in your boots. Because this is what it meant. It meant, it meant that there was about to be a, a serious fight. Because this is how it would come down. The bride's family would find out the father of the bride, being his duty, would gather up all of his large, bulky, six-foot-tall sons who had been pumping iron, and they would come to the groom and they would say, what's the deal inviting us to a party where there's not enough wine? And you would know that you were in big trouble. In fact, we know from historical evidence that this could be a cause for lawsuits. Okay, it was certainly a cause for a family fight, and it would always bring shame to your family. And it would say, you didn't care enough, you weren't concerned enough, you weren't prepared enough to take care of things right. And it would look bad, bad on you, and it would create division and, and anger and hostility within the family. And that just kind of kills the joy of a celebration. You know, when your wife's brother wants to beat you up, and you know, the parents are threatening to sue you, it just kind of kills it, you know? You just don't feel like partying anymore. Well... Uh, that's kind of the, the setting and uh, as the story unfolds it becomes clear that Mary Jesus' mother is feeling this pressure and we don't know uh, if she was in charge it's possible that she was in charge of catering maybe she was a, a close relative that had been given the responsibility of lining up the food we don't know maybe she was just a concerned relative who saw this is bad you know, this is bad uh, if we don't fix this soon it could get ugly. And uh, we don't know, but she certainly felt those expectations. And she does what every good mother does when she feels these pressures and these expectations. She turns to her eldest son and says, Fix this! Jesus, we got a problem here. you got to fix it. All right? Now, some people read in this, and and in all honesty, when I used to uh, read this, I saw this as Mary... uh, putting an expectation on Jesus to do a miracle. That Mary was saying, you know, you're God, fix it. But there's really no evidence that Mary would have expected that. It says clearly that this was Jesus' very first miracle. Uh, you know, the apocryphal stories about Jesus doing miracles as a boy, making birds, you know, fly out of clay, you know, balls, probably not true. Uh, there's really nothing that would have preconditioned Mary to expect a miracle from Jesus. I think she was coming far more as a mother who had for many years learned to trust and depend on the care and provision of her firstborn son. Uh, Joseph isn't around. It's very likely that by this point, uh, Joseph had died. 
And the burden of caring for the family had fallen on Jesus as the firstborn son. And it seems very clear that Mary was coming to him saying, Jesus, we have a serious problem here. And Jesus, being the perfect son, had always proven himself a reliable and a resourceful firstborn who knew how to solve things, who knew how to take care of things. And I think she came to Jesus and she said, you know, Jesus, there's an emergency here. You've got to do something about it. And so... Um, Jesus' response to her, uh, the New Living says, how does this concern you and me? Uh, it leaves out the word, um, it leaves out a word that we can't really translate. Uh, Jesus says, first of all, basically, woman would be one translation, miss, ma'am. Uh, he doesn't respond, mom. Okay? The key thing is he doesn't say, okay, mom. He uh, addresses her in a way that very much distances himself from her. Um, you see, Mary was expecting Jesus to fix things as her son. And Jesus was at a point in his life and his ministry now where he was no longer able to operate, especially solving problems, as Mary's son. He now needed to operate and move as one operating as the son of God. Uh, no longer was Jesus at a place in his life where he would be dictated by his mother's agenda. Okay, have you ever been there? Uh, where your life is dictated by your mom's agenda. Okay, there's a point when that's a good thing. But there is a point for all of us when we need to distance ourselves from our parents' agenda, expectations, goals, dreams. And we must surrender our life fully to the agenda of God, the agenda of the Father. And say, God, not my parents' will, not my will, but your will be done. And uh, in, in Jesus addressing Mary this way. He wasn't being disrespectful. Uh, we don't really have a good equivalent for the word he used there. He wasn't being disrespectful saying, some translations use the word woman, which can sound very disrespectful. Disrespectful. Um, he was holding her in the highest respect, but distancing himself as her son. And he says, you know, if I'm going to fix this, it's not going to be by your agenda as your son. It will be as the mighty son of God. And then he says an even more confusing thing. He says, what's this got to do with us? Um, also a very kind of confusing phrase in the Greek. Um, it, it kind of implies the idea, this isn't really our problem. Uh, this really isn't our issue. And it's true, it wasn't. And he was also detaching himself from unrealistic expectations that he really had no responsibility for. You see, Jesus doesn't owe us anything. He certainly didn't owe them anything. And if he were to work and to solve, it would be not through expectations or through obligations, but it would be by his choice and his grace. And so that's what Jesus is saying there. And finally, he says, um, he says, my time or my hour has not yet come. Now this, of all the things that he says in this one verse, is the strangest. Uh, my time has not yet come. Uh, what time? What is he talking about? Well, for a long time, I thought what he was saying here was, my time to begin my ministry, my time of doing miracles, had not yet come yet. And if that's true, then, then, um, then Jesus ends up doing something that he just said he wasn't prepared to do. It almost sounds like he caves into his mom's expectations and does something that he just said he wouldn't do. But that's really not what he's saying. And in fact, throughout the gospel, the, the phrase, my hour has not yet come, 
And later, towards the end of the book, when he finally says, my hour has come, it always refers to his death on the cross. It always points to the cross. Now, that clears up what he means, but it doesn't really clear up what he, what he means. Uh, okay, that is like, you know, Mary says, you know, fix this problem, and Jesus says, it's not time to go to the cross yet. Good. <laughs> We're glad. What's that got to do with anything? Well, uh, you know, Jesus lays out these right relationships with his mom. He makes it clear that he's operating as the son of God. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that ultimately everything in Jesus' life pointed to the cross. Everything that Jesus was about focused on and was directed toward his mission to bring ultimate glory to the Father through dying on the cross, through the obedience of the cross. Uh, he ends this, parab- this, this story uh, by talking about this being Jesus' first sign which manifests God's glory. And God's ultimate glory, as we will see as we go through this book, was manifest and made clear when Jesus died on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying here is two things. First of all, the ultimate cure, the ultimate solution, the ultimate answer to life's problems is not fixing the small broken things, but it's addressing the root causes of all problems. And that is dealt with first and foremost at the cross. He says the ultimate solution to all of life's issues and problems are not the circumstances. It's the heart issues of sin and death that I will deal with on the cross. Uh, it, it was something that would have gone by Mary, and if you were reading this gospel for the very first time, it would go by us as well. But as those who have already read the end of the story, already know the end of the story, we see Jesus introducing early on, early on in his ministry, the, the cross that would overshadow every part of his life and ministry. It would be the focus that it all headed toward. Uh, the, second, the second thing that this points to is that Jesus, uh, Jesus recognized that, that everyone must come under the cross and that everything would, would give glory through the cross. And so he makes it clear that that's his agenda, that's his direction, that's his purpose. And so he sets that as really the context for this miracle. Uh, I am the living Son of God come to earth uh, to reveal the Father's glory, as it says in John chapter 1, 14, that through Jesus, the glory of the Father would be revealed. And so as he does this miracle, he wants to make it clear that it's not just to fix a problem, to keep the party going, although it did that. Ultimately, it was a sign of his glory that ultimately would point to and be fulfilled in the cross. We'll see that as we kind of unpack uh, its full meaning and, and its uh, significance at the end. But keep that in mind. Um, what do we do when... Um, well, at first, let, let me ask this. Have you, ever been, have you ever been here? Have you ever been in this place where, you know, you didn't buy enough wine? You didn't plan ahead well enough? You weren't prepared enough? And you get caught and everything kind of just deteriorates. Life falls apart. Um, to, to really get the impact of this, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the groom. Okay, we don't know that he knew what was going on yet, uh, but this would have been for him disastrous. Okay, and um, 
it would have brought great humiliation and shame and disgrace to him personally and to his family. This really was an emergency. Okay, it wasn't just about uh, running out of wine. It was about saving face. It was about honor. It was about not being, you know, for the rest of your life, oh yeah, you're that guy who didn't have enough wine at his wedding. You're the cheapskate guy. I'm not going to give you a loan. You're too cheap. You know, I mean, this was, this was his reputation. This was his honor. This was his life. You ever been there? Man, have I been there a lot. Uh, sometimes we end up there by our own poor planning. Um, we run out of time or money or resources because we just didn't plan ahead well enough. Uh, we neglected things. We ignored things. We didn't pay attention to details. We didn't plan ahead. Um, how many times uh, as students have we come down to like the day before the research papers due and we realize, hey, we should have started this like three weeks ago. <laughs> or you're at work and uh, this massive report is due and your boss is saying, you know, this report's due next week and you realize you should have probably been working on this like four months ago. And, uh, you know, it's not looking good. Um, perhaps you have uh, not planned adequately uh, in your budgeting and you know you've got like three weeks of the month left and no money, right? And you go, well, it didn't last very long. <laughs> it was fun while it lasted, but man, it's over soon. Um, sometimes that can get us in a tight fix where we are inadequately supplied because of our own failure to plan. Sometimes, though, it's just a matter of being poor. It's not because we didn't plan well. It's just because we're human and we run out of resources far too soon. Um, we all have 24 hours a day. And for me, and for probably most of us, 24 hours is just not enough. You know, I think somebody should come up with some legislation, make the day like 36 hours long. Uh, you know, if we could just move the Earth out of, you know, away from the sun, just a slightly longer orbit, maybe we could pull this off. You know, scientists can do a lot these days. Um, not enough time. Not enough money. Uh, what we have is spent. Uh, not enough brain power. Not enough savings. Not enough time. We find ourselves running short. And sometimes it gets us into a bind and we find ourselves looking foolish. Uh, not because we didn't plan, but just because we're poor. We're, we don't have the resources. Um, whatever the cause, the end result can be the same. We can end up looking foolish, looking irresponsible, looking inadequate. And Satan loves us to be in this place. Satan loves to tell us what a, what a mess up we are. Satan loves to rub it in our face and say to this groom, you, you are so lame. You're going to make a terrible husband. Look, you can't even do the wedding right. How are you going to be married? How are you going to take care of your family? Satan loves to jump on and attack these inadequacies, our failures, our mistakes, our, our past uh, inadequacies. And he loves to remind us of these things. He loves to rub these things in. He loves us to remind us. And, uh, and if Satan doesn't, people will. You know, people just really have no... No, I mean, can you, can you imagine teachers? They, they don't mind putting a D on a bad paper or an F of all the nerve. And uh, other, you know, our parents, have, we don't get things done. 
they're good at pointing out our failures. Uh, our, our, our boss, you know, if we don't get the job done, can be cruel sometimes in pointing out, of all the nerve, our inadequacies. Bill collectors are really good at this. You know, if you don't pay your electric bill, you may not know this, but in Thailand, they don't give advance warning. They just show up and take your power meter. I've had it happen. They just show up and, you know, your power meter's gone. It's like, well, I meant to pay the bill. And they're like, well, you know, we meant to take your power meter. <laughs> um, Satan and the world are good at making us look bad and feel bad. And certainly that's where this was headed. Um, but along comes Jesus, and he really does uh, save the day by supplying and fixing the problem with great abundance. Uh, it says that six, six large stone water pots were standing nearby, each water pot holding 20 to 25, up to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus instructed uh, the servants nearby to fill each of those six water pots until they were completely full. And then finally, when they were all full, he said, now take and dip out some, take it to the, the steward of the wedding, the, kind of the, the master of ceremonies of the wedding, and have him taste it. And he, the servants go, they take the wine. Of course, they know where it came from, but the master of ceremonies doesn't. He tastes it, and uh, this is good wine. In fact, he calls the, the groom over, and he says, man, you are a genius. Most people wait until everybody's drunk and their taste buds are shot and they've had lots of drink and they pull out the cheap wine. But you waited and saved the best for last. Good job. So here's this groom that was this far away from being like total heel, loser of the day. Now all of a sudden he is a man of class and style. He's a man who does it better than everybody else. Because Jesus saves the day in style. In style. And, uh, and with amazing abundance. 120, you know, 120 to maybe two, as much as 200 gallons of wine. We're talking a serious stash here. Okay, say there's 100 people at the wedding. That's like one to two gallons each. I mean, they can get really, you know, this is going to be a good party from here on out. Right? And this is good stuff. Okay? This is not cheap, like, cheap wine. This is good wine. Um... God provides not just enough, but he solves the problem with incredible abundance. Incredible abundance. Um, I really believe that in this story, the wine is very symbolic of, of joy in Christ. You may say, well, where, where do you get that from? Uh, it doesn't mention joy in this passage at all, except by context, uh, a wedding is supposed to be a joyous event. And by providing the wine, what Jesus did is he guaranteed and ensured that the joy of the celebration would continue. So, so that's one point, of, one point, that Jesus kept the party going. He kept the, the wine flowing. Uh, he kept the, the good reputation of the groom and his family in order so that the joy of the celebration would continue. But beyond that, in the Old Testament, joy uh, and wine often went together. Um, you know, here's, here's some good, good ammo. High school kids, you know, you can spring this on your parents. Uh, they love these verses. Psalms 104 says this, You send rain on the mountains from your heavenly home, and you fill the earth with the fruit of your labor. Talking to God here. 
You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad. Wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. What's the purpose of wine? I wouldn't know, but apparently it makes you happy. Okay? Another verse. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Happy, happy is the land whose king is noble, a noble leader whose leaders feast at the proper time to gain strength for their work and do not get drunk. Okay, that's an important one because when you go to the point of being drunk, you're not happy anymore. You're just drunk. <laughs> Laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. A party gives laughter. Wine gives happiness. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, wine had that, that image. When it was used in the right quantity, in moderation, it was given as a, a source of, of gladness to the, to, to the body. Um, and it's, it's pictured, it's image, its image is really a drink of joy. Uh, because of that, later on the prophets picked up this theme, and when they saw Jesus, uh, God, renewing Israel, restoring his kingdom in Israel, bringing new life to Israel after judgment, after captivity, uh, after destruction. This new life of restoration was oftentimes pictured uh, with similar uh, symbols of, of wine and of, of the vine and of joy. Uh, Jeremiah puts it this way. Jeremiah 31.12 says, They will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts the abundant crops of grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the healthy flocks and herds. Their life will be like a watered garden. All their so sorrows will be gone. The young women will dance for joy, and the old and, and men, young and old, will join in the celebration. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. Good song this morning. I'm trading my sorrow. The priests will en enjoy abundance. My people will feast on my good gifts. I, the Lord, have spoken. Another good pic picture of this joy of celebration is in Hosea chapter 14. Again, after God's judgment, God would restore them, and he said, Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars of Lebanon. Its, its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Um, those are pictures in the Old Testament of this day of rejoicing of celebration that would come when God would restore all things. Remember I said that Jesus said to Mary, you know, my hour hasn't come yet. Jesus cast this event in the shadow of the cross. And I really believe that this was intended by Jesus to be pointing towards something bigger and better, that he would fulfill perfectly and completely at the cross. Uh, I love these images that God would bring joy Along with his salvation, he would restore, he would regenerate, he would renew. The picture is of Jesus' death on the cross, uh, his blood, the cup of wine that we drink in communion, 
Celebrating what? New life in Him. Restoration. And with that ought to come what? Joy. Joy and fullness. Celebration. Uh, We are people who have been washed, who have been cleansed, who have been made new in Christ. Do we have something to celebrate? Amen. We have tons to celebrate. Do we know how to celebrate? Eh, See, you guys do. Amen. Yeah, teach the rest of us. See, a lot of us are still, we don't know what to celebrate. We're missing it. Great picture here of, of Jesus the joy giver. Jesus the source of life and abundance coming into our lives that are empty where because of our failures and our lack of planning and our, our poverty we have run out. We are empty. Uh, we, we are in danger of being disgraced because of our sin. We deserve the shame of being called an idiot, a loser. Because given to ourselves, we would all be in this groom's shoes. That's the ultimate end of our life, in and of ourselves, by our own effort and our own strength. We fall short. We come up empty-handed. But Jesus comes along and he fills us with his joy. He renews and he restores us by his grace. And through the cross, we have reason to celebrate. Because he fills us, not just with enough, not just with a little bit, but with abundance, with an abundance of grace that's overflowing, and with a quality that is excellent. Um, And I really believe that's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to fill us up. He wants to fill our empty, broken lives with his goodness. And when he does that, there ought to be joy. There ought to be a fullness of joy and life in Christ. Uh, He brings, where we have shame and humiliation, He brings glory. Where we have tired, weary, worn out lives, He supplies abundant joy and wisdom. Uh, Where we have failed people's expectations, He goes far beyond our wildest dreams, bringing joy to our hearts. Not just enough to get by, but in abundance. Um, and Jesus really does save the day. Most of the guests are unaware of it. Uh, we really don't even know if the groom knew how close he was to destruction. Uh, but all he knows is for some reason he's like the good guy now because Jesus has entered the scene and changed it, and transformed it. And finally, John gives this summary to the miracle. In verse 11 he says simply, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was Jesus' first display of his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We know of two groups that, 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 saw, that witnessed this miracle. It's not the kind of miracle you can make real public. Okay, it would kind of wreck the whole thing if the servants had gone, man, you should have seen that loser groom almost blew the whole thing by not buying enough wine, but Jesus came along and saved it. Well, that kind of kills the effect of the miracle. So probably the only people who really knew were the servants who did all the work and Jesus who did the miracle and his disciples who saw it. There's no indication that the servants got it. Uh, All it says is that it was a sign and that the, the disciples saw it 
and believed. Uh, it highlights a very important principle, and the principle is simply this, that God's glory is visible ultimately only through the eyes of faith. They saw, throughout the Gospels, a lot of people saw Jesus' miracles. Very few saw what it meant. A lot of people saw Jesus healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind. But only a few people really got it, really saw its full meaning as a revelation of God's glory. Uh, the disciples saw it because they had been given eyes to see. And as a result of them seeing it, it says that they were strengthened in their faith. They believed. They accepted Jesus and what he had done in his power. They saw it as a revelation of God's splendor and glory at work on earth. And they believed. They trusted in it. They accepted it by faith. Uh, it was a sign. Throughout the Gospel of John especially, the miracles are not just simply displays of power. They're not just cool tricks that Jesus does. Although they are cool tricks. Um, you know, imagine if you could just you know, take any big jug at your house and turn it like into Dr. Pepper. Or, you know, or wine or beer. Or I don't know. Whatever it is you drink. Uh, it would be a cool trick. But it was more than a trick. It was designed as a sign to reveal the power and glory of God, which, as, as John will show later, was centered in the cross. Uh, the glory of the cross. Um, interestingly, it says, and, and, and John makes a point of stating, that these weren't just any ordinary pots, that they were stone pots specially used for the rite of purification. Um, this is a great picture of Jesus exceeding the old system, the old way of Judaism. Uh, in the old way of Judaism, you were not clean from the inside out. You had to be clean from the outside in. And it involved all kinds of ceremonial washings. Everything under the sun could make you unclean. And if you're unclean, you had to go through all these you know, procedures and washings. And it would involve the water of these pots. Uh, Jesus says clearly, I am superseding that system. That system is dead and gone. And through the cross, I will supplant, I will outdo, I will exceed that old system. No longer will you be made clean by your own effort, your own hands. You'll be made clean now through faith in the blood of, of the cross. Um, you know, all of us, I pray, if we have put our faith in Christ, our, our, our life is a work of God's grace. It is a miracle in the making. It is a water pot being filled uh, to abundance with God's goodness. Um, my experience, though, is that oftentimes we don't see our life through the eyes of faith. We don't really see our eyes through the light of God's glory. And one of the reasons that we don't experience joy in our life is that we see our life only in its earthly circumstances. We are like that bridegroom who's sitting at the wedding going, Man, this is going to be a disaster. We're going to run out of wine. I knew I didn't buy enough. You know, I spent all the money I had. And Satan and the world loves to remind us of our failures and inadequacies. And if we live life looking at our life through those eyes, we'll be constantly discouraged. 
we will be constantly disappointed. And believe me, Satan loves to do this. That's why he is called the accuser. It is his job and mission in life to stand next to you and tell you what a loser you are, to tell you how you have failed, to remind you of your mistakes. And the reality is that we can choose to listen to that voice and see our life in its earthly, earthbound circumstances separate from the glory of the cross. Some of us have even seen the cross. We've seen that, yeah, Jesus comes and he somehow fixes my mess and he somehow forgives it. But we really haven't seen the glory of the cross. We failed to see it in its glory. And the glory of the cross is this. We are no longer water pots trying to get filled, trying to clean ourselves out. Instead, we are vessels overflowing with what? God's abundant, rich mercy and grace. His abundant joy. Not by our doing, but by His grace. Uh, Not that we don't have some effort. It's interesting that these poor servants had to do all the work. I was was thinking if it was 200 gallons and they had a 5-gallon bucket, that's like 25 trips to the well. Actually, that's not even good math. If it's 124 gallons, 5-gallon buckets (laughs) is 24 trips, I think. There you go. It's a lot of hiking back and forth to the well, put it that way. Uh, God doesn't expect us to meet him. But the miracle happens on his side. Do we see our eyes through the vision of glory of what God is producing in us? Let's take just a moment and pray before him. Lord Jesus, you have, uh, you have given us so many pictures in, in, in the Gospels of your glory at work, of your glory being displayed. And Father, we know that the work you are doing in us is, is of the same glory and the same kind. Uh, Lord Jesus, if you would take this much care and attention to fix... Um, a common everyday wedding ceremony to bring into it life and joy, how much more do you want to do in our own lives to bring into it the fullness of your life, the fullness of your joy, Uh, Lord, that we would truly have a spirit of joy and celebration in all that we are and do. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not Uh, to ignore, to put out of our heart and mind the the voice of Satan, the voice of the accuser, who wants us to see our life in light of our own human limitations. Lord, help us instead to choose by faith to see our life through the light, through the lens of your glory, through the lens of your finished work on the cross, which has done such an incredible and glorious work in our life. Lord, may it make us joyful people who celebrate in your goodness with all of our being. And right now, Lord, we're going we're to stand together and we're going to worship you. Lord, may we celebrate your goodness. May we celebrate the grace and glory of Jesus with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. May we honor you. Lord, we give this time of worship to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.